Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, the Pet Nebula by Alfred Bester. This is first published in Astonishing Stories, February 1941. Pretty early in uh, Bester's career. This has never been republished. Oh, I'm not. I'm not actually sure about that. Let me just check. Uh, the Pet Nebula, never been republished except for uh, in. Uh, uh, obscure, I think, online magazine. Um, yeah. Uh, not his best work. <laughs> um, no, it's not. But, dude, um, whenever somebody mentions uh, Vester, you know, online in a conversation, mm-hmm. uh, my my retort is always, he's the bester. None <laughs> <laughs> can best him, you know, like, uh, yeah, yeah. He made a huge splash with his two giant novels, uh, and I, they're not long. They're just giants standing, you know, astride the pillars of Hercules. Um, right. And then you know he has a bunch of you know short stories and other things, and some of those are standouts. Some of them we've done on this podcast. Um, but uh, you know that's not where he made most of his living, of course. Um, but He's got he's I, I was describing him the other day. It's like I think he'd like be a really cool guy to hang out with because <laughs> I've seen him speak, uh, you know, in old videos, and he's got uh, a real good rapport and he's sympathetic and he's like, oh, we're all doing our best here on this planet, sort of deal. Um, but this is his early pulp work, and yet um, it's so sparky. And I'm not just doing that to make a joke about how there's sparks in the story. Like, it is just so sparky with idea. And uh, the style, I think, is probably what holds it back from being a really great read. Um, I could appreciate the style, but it's it's sort of dated and it's, a, it's hip to the period of 1941. But uh, the ideas are brilliant. It's slightly too long for us to read. It's about 20 minutes. So I'm hoping you will uh, give us a story summary and then I will. We'll I think it. why the, it's so sparky. Yeah, why it's so sparky. I think to uh, mm, so when we're done thinking about the, the story per se, it's it's worth making a comparison to uh, to the Demolished Man, which is 1953, and uh, the Star is My Destination, 1956. Those are the two mm-hmm. works by which he is is known, um, and they are the, the the giants that you talked about. Uh, and in fact, the Demolished Man, to give people unfamiliar with Bester's work um, some sense, is the very first Hugo Award-winning novel. Mm-hmm. Um, so he really had something going. But this story is 1941. So this is a story where a guy is still learning his craft. Mm -hmm. It's a story, the Pet Nebula, that begins, at last, I said, you ought to get out of bed for meals at least. Harris shook his head. And it turns out that we're in an academic environment. Um, The man who's telling Harris to get out of bed is complaining because his students are saying that the prof's got a roommate who's been sleeping for five weeks. It turns out that the prof's roommate, 
who is another prof, um, is in fact not sleeping. He's curled up in bed with a square egg uh, warmed between his knees and his chest. He's sort of in a fetal position trying to hatch this square egg. Um, <laughs> since when have you turned chicken? I inquired. Why aren't you on the roof night on the roof nights taking pictures? You were cuckoo then, but at least you were predictable. And so that's very interesting because the whole thing has to do with hatching. Mm. Right? That's the, 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 the opening scene. And we have this bird imagery. Uh, but it's not just, you know, you were cuckoo, meaning you were crazy, but at least you were predictable when you were doing stuff instead of, you know, you're getting paid as an astronomer. Now you're doing it on your own. So that's crazy. But cuckoos are birds that leave their eggs in other birds' nests. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the neat things, because this square egg, as it's called, but it's actually a cube, is something that this this that Harris is trying to hatch. Well, what is it? And Harris explains to his uh, prof, other professor roommate. Um, Harris is an astronomer. The roommate is a chemist. Um, he explains about Herschel, who, in fact, is a hugely important 18th century astronomer particularly important technologically for having ground the very best uh, lenses, uh, mirrors for telescopes at the time. He says that Herschel had his papers and in them, our guy, Harris, had found an encoded message that referred to mirrors that that Herschel had soldered into um, into storage containers and everyone who even knew about it thought they were just there for storage in case they would be used at some future time because Herschel's telescopes and the mirrors for them were widely distributed. But in fact, the coded message Harris figured uh, was able to discern gave him instructions about how to use this telescope and what it did. You could turn it on the heavens and you would attract the egg of a nebula. And of course, nebulae are incredibly dense. They're very massive. And the story here is that the, the egg, after five weeks of incubating inside Harris's fetalized body, hatches. And out comes something that looks a lot like a seahorse, but it floats in the air. And it's fiery. And it's little. But this fiery little thing begins to absorb little items around it. And more and more things get absorbed into it. And as more and more is absorbed into it, it gets heavier and heavier. Um, and we get the explanation that this is pure protons, right? Uh, and it's throwing off en- the energy of the electrons that it was discarding as it's attracting more stuff to it as it's growing. And that's why it gets lighter and it's more dangerous. And at a certain point, it's so big that it's crashing through the building. And the, the, the chemist narrator tries to put it out with a uh, with a fire extinguisher, but they decide we're going to have to take it to their their crazy, crazy other science colleague, Professor Gobblewurst, right? So they they somehow manage to 
to lasso this thing and bring it across the quad. It's getting bigger as we go to Professor Gobblewurst's um, lab. And Professor Gobblewurst understands it immediately and says, oh, yes, yes, it's going to destroy the world. But that's not important now. Let's you know observe the scientific phenomenon. But what they managed to do instead is convince the university power station to allow them to sur- to give them a power surge of electricity. They surround this thing before it's getting gotten too big and has begun to bud, but the bud hasn't come off yet. They surround this thing and bombard it with a huge, huge number of electrons. Well, in effect, it digests things and throws out electrons. So now, in fact, by having nothing but electrons around it to ingest – it is it's eating its own crap and so you know it stops going <laughs> and it dies it dies um now notice by the way harris not a particularly interesting name but the bird imagery clearly is in, is significant and there are other sparks uh forgive me um of, of writerly excellence here. Mm-hmm. I mean, Gobbleversed, you know, so, you know, that's someone who eats a sausage, right? So this yep. crazy Germanic professor, well, he's going to eat. Well, the pet nebula has been eating. It has not been a good pet at all. <laughs> um, though he'd planned the whole, you know, Simple spoke up Gobbleversed as though he'd planned the whole thing. The nebula was pure proton which is presumably, people some believe this in 1941, is what the sun was. The nebula was pure proton. We submitted him to a barrage of Coolidge tube emanations, which are pure electrons. His body sopped up with the free electrons. Each proton acquired enough to reform it into an atom. Again, the heat and radiation were transformed into the energy of electronic orbits. He swelled until he was a mass of atoms once more and sank. He sinks right into the earth. That's all. Huh, said Harris. Looks stupid, I said. Your pal ate protons and the waste product of his metabolism was electrons. We surrounded him with nothing but free electrons, so he had nothing to ingest but his own waste. Get it? He died of auto-intoxication. They call it constipation in the ads. <laughs> no, no, cried Gobblewurst. The free electrons were attracted by the protons and set up into orbits. Atoms were reformed, and but Harris and I were already headed home across the quad. Credible, these scientists don't care what they're – well croaked, Harris. It just goes to show you, crime doesn't pay. <laughs> Never mind, I said. At least it got you out of bed. <laughs> So it's kind of a nice structure, right? It begins and ends with Harris in, you know, uh, the question of, you know, Harris being functional in the world. Professors, the young and the old, not too good. Our narrator, turns out, is a recent PhD. We know that because he doesn't really care about the science and the world being destroyed, but he doesn't want to waste the $70 he had just (laughs) paid to have his thesis typed up. There's a lot of humor here, which is characteristic of a lot of Bester's writing. And there are ideas here which are characteristic of Bester's writing, but the ideas are scientifically quite dated, although it doesn't really matter if you're reading this as a funny story. Mm. You just have to know that's what people sort of believe. Some people believed at the time. It wasn't until Hans Bethe actually explained the underlying uh, dynamics of uh, solar um, 
energy creation that we knew that this was wrong. Um, but we knew now we know it's wrong. But so what? It's an historical story. Yeah. It's funny. And we enjoy it. You enjoyed it, right? I did. Um, but I think I think it it would have been a lot funnier in 1941. Uh, or maybe maybe it's just this... It's probably the way and where it was published. So uh, w- when I think of Bester, I do think he's funny. Um, but the humor here is quite broad. And yet the idea... It's almost a hard science fiction story. I, I think it, it fails in the sense that... Yeah, I mean, I have a few questions. Like, I was like... The sun is pure protons. One of my notes, he's like, I don't think that's exact. I mean, it's not completely wrong, but the idea of like all the things he does in the story are pretty good science for the time. So he's trying in that direction, but this story has so much going on. It's almost, it's, it could have been expanded into a novel and not, uh, been a, a story without ideas. It it could very easily have d- been expanded. In. I'm glad it wasn't because uh, I don't like novels that long that have one interesting idea. But what I do see here is this is a retelling of Frankenstein in a certain sense. A man giving birth to another male, right? Uh, the thing thing about this is this is uh, on the cover of the magazine in, in beautiful uh, color, and then there's interior illustrations showing the seahorse and a man uh, apparently trying to kill it um, because it's trying to kill them, but it's not trying to kill them because it's malevolent. It's it's just a cuckoo, right? And it has this background right. with Herschel's mirrors, which I was not familiar with. I, I knew. A, that Herschel was an astronomer, but I didn't really, uh, William Herschel, I think it is, uh, out of the UK. He was an astronomer, early pioneer in, uh, reflecting telescopes. And, uh, so when I got to that detail in the story, I was like, Oh, I bet this is, this is real. And in the sense that those mirrors did exist and one could go to England and examine his notes and read the code and, so when he he takes that idea of Herschel being an astronomer who found something extraordinary in the heavens with his strangely angled mirrors, which is a little bit of uh, uh, Hounds of Tindalos, uh, Frank Belknap, Belknap Long, or um, uh, in Dreams in the Witch House, um, with the strange angles, you know, allow access to non-Euclidean geometry. Right? If you just get the the right strange angles on your mirrors, you can you can. Uh, find out truths about reality. And mm-hmm. so when he does that, he takes his home uh, prior to the story start and he's up observing something and he captures uh, essentially an egg and he says, well, what do you do with eggs? You incubate them. <laughs> okay. Which means he sits on an egg for five weeks, is it? Uh, in right. in bed, which is ridiculous. And then it hatches and it starts eating everything, and it's not malevolent in that it seems to to be friendly, but the way it's talked about, at one point, uh, they refer to the pet nebula as uh, Mr. Arson, <laughs> because he's right. lighting everything on right. fire. Um, and, and instead of, like, uh, you know, trying to teach it or raise it right, uh, instead of just, you know, 
treating it like a child, what do they do? They try and kill it and they lead it on and then they set it up into a trap and then they kill it. The reason they kill it is because it's going to destroy the planet as perhaps part of the solar system is going to go too. But um, the idea of, of nebulas being a far off distant thing that are uh, contagious is a, is a great idea. And uh, <laughs> it's based on he, ne, Bester reading about Herschel and saying, wow, this guy really captured uh, uh, the excitement of astronomy. <laughs> And I can do that right here in my story. And he's also making fun of academia and making fun of um, the prototypical German professor uh, of science, right? 1941, they were famous. We've got Einstein. We've got uh, a whole sort of class of Japanese and German professors who are extraordinary at finding out realities and then they're they're nutty as well so we have nutty professors all over the place this is almost a comedy from the period uh you know one of those uh road road style movies or it's it's very broad comedy and yet it has that sense of um of uh being a metaphor there's no women in this story it's all men uh, and it's it's the reading of Frankenstein that I think is, you know, the most interesting. One of the things that I think is uh, it's always a problem when you and I start digging into into stories, Jesse, is it, to know how much is just, you know, what we're able to bring to the story and how much was in the story. Mm-hmm. So uh, th- I I would like to lean on the notion of cuckoo here, mm-hmm. where somebody is hatching something that's not really his or hers. And there are some birds, after all, where the males sit on the nest, on the eggs as well. Um, I'd like to lean on that a little bit because it turns out that Herschel, um, you know, you called him British, but he's in fact not British. He became a British citizen, but he was German. Right. And he didn't, he didn't get to England until he was almost 20. Um, And through his entire career, he had a really incredible, important collaborator who was his sister, not his wife. He was married, uh, but his sister, who most people have never heard of. I mean, if you're into the history of science, you've encountered Carolyn Herschel. But Herschel's name is well known. He's a, a giant in the history of, of science. Um, but Carolyn Herschel you know, sort of lost in the background there, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, again, what's happening with the women? What's happening with the women? Um, the writing here is good enough that you kind of wonder, maybe he's he's coming to understand these things. Um, it was, he said, from the broken halves of the crystal, I could see a flaming figurine arise. Mm. It was perhaps half an inch long and shaped very much like a seahorse. Now, I don't know whether or not Bester had this in mind, but you may know. I do. That in fact, you do. <laughs> yep. You, know, you want to say what he's about to say? Yeah. Seahorses are males. Uh, well, the males carry the eggs. Exactly. <laughs> Once the fertilization happens, the males carry the eggs. 
arched neck, protruding eyes, flaring nostrils, and a tiny body that dwindled to a tendril. Most amazing of all was the way it blazed. It seemed to be made of pure blue-white flame, and it floated in the air like a tiny, brilliant sun that hurt our eyes. That's it, sighed Harris. That's my, not that's my boy, that's my child, that's my nebula. This is good writing. Mm -hmm. This is good writing. And, you know, yes, the story, not reprinted, but you know what? There's so much in it that shows a mind at work, a good writer's mind at work. This thing looked like the quad was blazing with a light like 6,000 colored searchlights. Mm. What an interesting number. number. Yeah, I made that note as well. Exactly. And yet what happens is it eats six platinum crucibles. What's with the six? Well, you know, take a look at the six. Take a look at the Star of David. Take a look at all kinds of Kabbalistic signs where six represents some mystic power. And Gobbleverst, Gobbleverst, no one cared that he kept on living on salami, which is a verst, and iced tea and sleeping with salamanders, which are traditionally the spirits of fire, mm-hmm. which is what's going on in his laboratory. There's some good writing here. Oh, At yeah. the end, no, no, cried Gobbleverse. The free electrons were attracted by the protons, right? Uh, so well, croaked Harris. It just goes to show you crime doesn't pay. Now, that's a typical end for lots of pulp fiction. Yep. Typically funny detective stories. The crime here was that Harris had sneaked in to the archive, decoded the stuff, and stole one of the soldered-in mirrors. Mm -hmm. That's the crime. And it didn't pay because he, in fact, there was destruction, not success. But instead of the story ending there, Bester has it go on. Never mind, I said. At least it got you out of bed. Which it seems to me is, when you say this is metaphorically powerful, it's sort of a a, a self-reflexive notion that, okay, okay, who cares about this? You know, a nebula wouldn't float anyway if it's so heavy. I mean, there's all causes of thing, things wrong with mm-hmm. it. But it got you interested. <laughs> yes, it, it got did. you out of bed. So... You know, in the got story, me to buy the Harris out of <laughs> exactly. Yeah, this is this is lovely. Um, at least, I guess we share we share a view of that. Yeah, uh, and it, it's it's not an idea that has gone unnoticed either. There's a, a funny situation. One of the most iconic um, one of, one of the jobs Alfred Bester had. He uh, had I think he had a hand in the creation of the Green Lantern. Uh, the character from the DC Comics. And in uh, DC Comics, uh, there's another pulp writer of the same period. Um, they were all sort of using their each other's ideas, reading each other's stories, uh, named Gardner F. Fox, who is supposedly responsible for this famous character that appears on a famous cover, uh, a character named Starro. Starro is not a seahorse. It's a basically a starfish, which is another strange, you know, creature uh, from the sea that has been transposed to be space. Starro is like our uh, asexually budding uh, seahorse here, um, 
replicatable and he's going to destroy the, <laughs> the earth um it's in a recent um dc movie is he's the main bad guy calling him a he doesn't even make sense because he is just a thing um but uh it's it's the same idea it's like we take the infinite seas of space and we use the metaphor of a of a sea creature to explain you know the weirdness that's going on within us and our own biology because you know if it's an egg and it's square and it's uh asexually budding does it really need a cuckoo like it it doesn't really make any sense what really makes sense is he read about Herschel and his mirrors and he just got excited about it because he was presumably in university himself. And he's like, these are great ideas. And then, uh, it's funny, I made this note while you were describing the plot of the story. And it like, oh yeah, it just jumped out at me. Um, <laughs> so this is a, a story about a meta, it's a metaphor for super science. Um, and what is super science? Super science is eating its own waste, right? Where you you take you take some idea from science and you say, what if? And then someone else reads that story and says, you know, that's interesting. I'll take some of that. <laughs> they just feed this, you know, it's like cannibalism. You keep feeding the machine and <laughs> all this waste comes up. He's making fun of science fiction as well as making fun of all the other things. He's just having so much fun. I think you're absolutely right. And it, it, and this is a 1941 story. He's doing all of this as as you're talking. He's making fun of it. He's been reading the science fiction. Science fiction has been going on now officially, at least for um, since 1926, since April 1926. So we're 15 years into pulp science fiction, right? Since Amazing Stories published its very first issue under um, Hugo Gernsback. We're 15 years into science fiction. He's a youngish fellow. He's been reading science fiction, and he's he's already making fun of it. He's extracting his these ideas. He's playing with them. He is the cuckoo. Mm-hmm. He's invading science fiction. He's invading the pulp world with Crime Doesn't Pay. But I think, though, that while we can see all of these connections, if one reads his two most um, lauded novels, one can also understand why this hasn't been reprinted. Uh, to, to speak just in the, the simplest way, The Star's My Destination. Um, well, let's start with uh, The Demolished Man. The, the, the Demolished Man is a story that, um, in, in a world where detectives are telepaths, mm-hmm. and how do you manage to commit a crime when, if you really intend to do it, someone will know? And they can certainly stop you before if you're close to doing it. And they can certainly find out about it if once you've done it. How do you make that happen? The, the question of the power of the mind and the power of one mind to fool another mind is like this story, metafictional. Mm-hmm. You know, right? But it's also something that has a deep moral connection for us, you know. Are, are my guilty thoughts something I'm really guilty of? If if I if I resent that older male figure, which is who thwarts my marriage, which is what happens in uh, the Demolished Man, um, if am I really uh, fr- uh, 
patricidal? Mm-hmm. Am I really? Uh, is there, or maybe, you know, maybe I'm allowed to have my thoughts, God damn it. You know, maybe I'm allowed to have them. It's it's a it's a pulp novel, but it deals with some really powerful moral issues. In the same way, The Star's My Destination is about someone who has been wronged, radically wronged, and abandoned to die in space. And somehow he wants to go so badly that suddenly he jaunts, yeah. whatever jaunt means. <laughs> and he manages to go instantaneously through space and arrive where he can still survive. He doesn't just die in the cold of space. And his jaunting ability is what he uses in order to revenge himself on those who would have wrongfully killed him. So in both of these stories, we have the question of of violence, of someone being oppressed and justifying his violence, and of the power of the mind. And it's it's something particularly for for teenagers who are wondering, <laughs> can, can I be disobedient? Can I do, do I have to do what the world wants me to do? Do I have to do what my parents want me to do? Is it okay? I mean, that's what Superman's about. Mm-hmm. Take off the goddamn you, you know, the, the disguise and you'll see I'm the good superpowered person in here, right? These stories, The Star is My Destination and The Demolished Man, outstanding novels, Long, long uh, histories of being read and admired, and yet we can see the good writing, the significant ideas, the 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 growth out of the pulp matrix mm-hmm. into telling a story that anyone could read. The attraction for somebody young, after all, the narrator here just is getting his dissertation typed up. Right, we the, still living alone. Nobody's married. You, you can see a parallelism between what gets produced in fifty three and fifty six. Those two novels, going all the way back to nineteen forty one, the young Alfred Bester has the seeds in him of being a powerful writer. And looking back at the story that way, I think we can give it credit Mm -hmm. for all the things we might read into it. Because even if he didn't know it in 1941, these were ideas that were nascent in Alfred Bester, and it's possible to see them in this story. But it's also possible not to see them which is perhaps why it was uh, never reprinted. On the other hand, when they turn it over to you and me, it's clear there was always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio.